0: Good morning. I, uh, I feel like I have a lot of work to do this morning. Like we had a full band and then we brought the kids up. So I gotta keep the, <laughs> the energy going. Uh, can't disappoint here. Uh, my name is Dan. Uh, I'm excited to be up here with you guys. Um, it's always an honor. Um, so I wanna thank you for giving me this honor. Thank the pastors for giving me this honor. Um, I wanna start this morning's sermon with a question. And the question is, when was the last time that you, um, you anticipated a big life-changing event? Now, that could be like a wedding. That could be um, graduation, retirement, child being born, something that you had to wait a long time to, um, to experience. Now, think of that event. Now, think about what was it like the night before? When you're you're lying in your bed and you know the big day is tomorrow, what was that like for you? Were you stressed out? Were you excited? Could you even fall asleep? Um, For us, one thing that just popped into my head when I was thinking about this question was we just bought a house. And it was really exciting, but it was also very strange to leave the place that we'd lived in for 13 years. I mean, this house that we're leaving was the place where our kids were born. Okay, they were born in the hospital, (laughs) but you get the idea. Um, So we bought this new home in like late June and then we moved into it in like the second week of August. And the anticipation of this event made that the longest Six weeks of my life now this wasn't aided at all by the fact that we had i think i'm i don't think I'm being too um unfair to say that our the people buying our house were difficult uh, I'm really trying to choose my words in case this is ever on like a recording somewhere, and I have to like listen to it in court um, <laughs> but when we finish our closing. You know, Pastor Eric is my real estate agent as well. Highly recommended. Um, I think we're both like, yeah, we, we need therapy. We ne- <laughs> and I'm not even really joking. <laughs> like, we need therapy after that experience. But in this, in this time period, in this six weeks, you know, it kept going through my mind. Every time I did something, it'd be like, oh, wow, that's the last time I'll do X at this house. This is the last time I'm ever gonna mow the lawn. This is the last time I'll ever have to change that light bulb that always goes out. You know, this is the last time I'll ever sit on that toilet. (laughs) But nothing was quite as surreal as sleeping in bed for the last time, knowing that tomorrow, the next day, I was gonna sleep in a new house. And just thinking about all the new strange possibilities. There's going to be new sounds. There's going to be new you know, experiences, new smells. It could be haunted. You know, like there's just, there's so much, uh, so much unknown. And I knew that we were setting off on this new adventure. We're embarking on a totally new adventure. Now, the reason that I'm trying to bring all of us into this mind space, of anticipation and setting off on a new adventure is that we are moving on in Joshua to chapter three in chapter four, and this marks the brink. We are on the brink for the Israelites of a generational life event. The Israelites are finally going to make it into the promised land. Now, this is the place of blessing and rest that was promised to Abraham hundreds of years ago. This was the dream that sustained the Israelites while they were in captivity in Egypt for 400 years. This is the place that their parents were actually forbidden to enter into because they were forgetful and grumbled and complained in the wilderness. This is where Moses, the Moses, the leader of the grumbling people was told, you can see it, but you can't enter. Finally, finally, in this chapter, God is ready to let Joshua and the Israelites into the land. So we're gonna read about the culmination of all this waiting in Joshua. Um, We're covering chapters three and four. A lot of reading today. So we're gonna do it a little differently than normal. I'm going to read like a a paragraph, pause. we'll, We'll make a few notes and then we'll keep going. So I'm not gonna ask you guys to stand but I will ask you guys to follow along um, as we go through this. Okay, so we're going to start in Joshua chapter three. Um, The first sort of section here, we're going to go through verse six, reads, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. All right, so we're gonna pause there for a second. And I'm gonna give you just real quick backstory, which you may remember from previous sermons is that the Israelites and they're being led by Joshua, they've already defeated two Amorite tribes, two Amorite kings east of the Jordan. So they're on the east bank of the Jordan. They wanna get to the west bank, okay? And they were camped about five, excuse me, about 10 miles in a place called Shittim. Now, that is Hebrew for Acacia Grove. And I'm going to call it Acacia Grove for the rest of the sermon, because every time I say that, I feel like I'm walking on thin ice. Um, Now, last week, we talked about Rahab. And in that story, we learned that the people of Jericho and the people of of the Canaan area they had heard of this conquering people that was encroaching on the land. And I would imagine that they were nervously planning how to defend their cities. And they must've been thinking, well, thank God there's this big river separating us from them. Now I am not a military analyst, but I doubt that the Canaanites, they expected the Israelites to, um, with all the men, women, children, farm animals to make a beeline towards this river, this large and overflowing river. I think if you attended West Point, this would not be in your military strategy textbooks, but it's exactly what they did. The whole nation heads towards the river. And as they head towards this river, they seem confident that God is not only with them, that God is not only leading them, but that God is going to do something amazing. And this is actually symbolized quite literally by putting the Ark of the Covenant out in front of them. Because not only did this allow God to lead, they follow where the Ark goes, but it sends a powerful message to anybody who's looking on, anybody looking on that says, to challenge us means to challenge the one true God. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is, is featured prominently in these two passages that we're gonna read, these two chapters, 17 times it mentions it. Um, I love stories with the Ark of the Covenant. You 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 throw Ark of the Covenant into a movie, a story, I'm in, okay? It's, it's mysterious, it's powerful, it can melt Nazi faces. It's this uniquely special representation um, of the presence of God, and it represents the relationship between God and his people. Because... It rolls off the tongue. We say it, Ark of the Covenant. But do we ever stop and think about the word covenant in there? What is the covenant? What is a covenant? Um, A covenant is like a sacred agreement between God and his people that outlines promises, commitments, and obligations. It's important for us, if we want to know God, especially in the context of the Old Testament, we need to understand that he is a covenantal God, a God that makes these kind of agreements, these sacred agreements with his people. Deuteronomy 7, 9 reads, "'Know therefore that your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations.'" And so God has made this covenant with his people at Moses or with his people at Sinai through Moses. It's called the Synatic, I think I'm pronouncing that right. The Sinaitic covenant. He made it with Moses and that was the leader again before Joshua. And the promise was, if you follow me, you'll be blessed. If you don't follow me, there will be consequences. And the Israelites are being led by the symbol of this covenant. As they march towards this river, their actions shout, hey, this may look crazy. I know this looks nuts, but we're following the Lord. And as I think about this, as we read this, this is a good reminder for you and me that following the Lord will feel often like starting off on a wild adventure. And at times it's going to look crazy. And at times it'll look like failure is imminent. All right, we're going to keep moving. We got a lot of ground to cover. All right, so we're picking up in verse seven and we're going to go through verse 13 here. The Lord said to Joshua, "'Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, "'that they may know that as I was with Moses, "'so I will be with you. "'And as for you, command the priests "'who bear the Ark of the Covenant, "'when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, "'you shall stand still in the Jordan.'" And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord, your God. And Joshua says, here's how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, From each tribe a man, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Okay, so we're moving the story forward. And here we're told of a major reason behind this miracle. So yes, it is to bring the people into Canaan. And yes, it is to deliver righteous judgment on um, God's enemies. But there's a third reason that they let us know in here. And that is to know God wants to let everybody know that he is with Joshua, that Joshua is the leader. He's setting up Joshua as the leader of the Israelites. And he's telling them that like this covenant promise that I made with you I made it through Moses and all the strength and all the courage that that covenant promise has brought you. It is still yours through Joshua. And just like I parted the Red Sea with Moses, I will part the Jordan for Joshua's people. All right, moving on to verse 14. We're going to go down to 14 to the end of 3 to 17. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark has come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is bef- beside Zarethan, and those flowing down towards the Sea of Arabah the Salt Sea, were completely cut off and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant and the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan and all of Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Now something that, struck me here is that there's a lot of rising action in these verses. And verses 14 and 15, they set out from their tents and then they come as far as the Jordan, their feet dip into the water. And all of a sudden the action is cut off for a weather report on the river conditions of the Jordan. And it really feels like it undercuts the tension that the author is building. It's like, well, why does he do this? And I think the point is to know that you know, this isn't some like lazy river, you know, this isn't some little Creek. As I was thinking about this, it kept reminding me of the scene from Robin hood, men in tights. I don't know if you remember, I'm getting, not getting a lot of uh, feedback on that reference. Um, your, your homework is go and, you know, find Robin hood men in tights on some streaming service and watch it. There's a scene in there where Robin hood and little John are kind of fighting over a bridge. And Dave Chappelle, who plays a character is like, guys, the bridge is over a Creek that is like a backyard Creek. It's like, we don't have to fight. We can just step over the Creek. You know, this isn't that complicated. Um, thanks Brett. I appreciate it. (laughs) Always count on Brett. Um, so anyways, um, the, uh, the point being that this was not a small Creek, that this was not something that they were going to be able to, to, to pass flood stage. Jordan is wide and fast and deep. If you were going to pick a time to cross the Jordan, this would be the worst. And the emphasis here is that only through God can this be done. And sometimes God will put us into impossible circumstances for the very point of impressing upon us that if we make it, if we survive, it was only through his power and grace. All right, so moving on to chapter four, we move on. Let's see what happens. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people from each tribe of man and command them saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in the time to come, What do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And when it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord had told Joshua and they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. For the peace, for the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord had commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. So something notable as we pause here is to think about just how much of the story that we're reading is dedicated to remembering the miracle. If you think about this miracle of crossing the Jordan, the parting of the Jordan waters, there's a lot of emphasis put on the lead up to it. And there's a lot of emphasis put into the fallout, the remembering of it. And the, the miracle itself seems to go by pretty quick. Um, it, it almost makes it seem like it was tame. I don't want you to think that this was tame. So the place where the water was stopped, Adam, was like 20 miles north of where they crossed. And what that means is that anybody in that area would have seen what God had done that day. But the narrative here, it really focuses on remembering, on this idea of taking the time to remember and passing that knowledge on to future generations. And here it's good for us to recall that the generation that's, that's crossing the Jordan right now is not the same generation that crossed the Red Sea. That was the generation before, that was their parents. That generation experienced a similar miracle, maybe even mightier miracle when they crossed the Red Sea. But when they got into the wilderness and life got a little tough, they quickly forgot what God had done and they fell into complaints and grumbling as they made their way towards the promised land. And as a punishment, God declared that none of the Israelites of that generation would reach the promised land until they had passed away, until after that generation had passed away. And so what you see here is the kids are trying not to repeat the mistakes of the parents. And maybe they're trying not to doom their children to the the circumstances that they they grew up in. All right, we're going to keep moving. We're moving along. So we're starting, uh, we're 11 through 14 here. The people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priest passed over before the people. And the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of the Lord, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle. To the plains of Jericho, on that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in all of him, just as they had stood in all of Moses all the days of his life. So, these these three tribes that are called out here—Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh—it's interesting. They were not promised land in—they uh, were not promised land in Canaan their promised area was actually on the East Bank, where they already were. So they crossed over, even though they had already conquered the land that they were going to, um, to occupy. And it, it made me think that, you know, how often are we motivated towards obedience because of what we think we might get? How often are our ends What's, what's in it for us, the reason that we obey. And for these three tribes, obedience was just for obedience sake. God said, I know this isn't your land that you're conquering, but you need to go over with them and fight alongside them. And they did. And I also want you to know how, notice how Joshua's propped up. Because if you read the story, like what did Joshua do here? I mean, he didn't like win a battle in chapter three or chapter four. We haven't talked about that. He didn't lead them. The ark did that. He didn't actually do anything when it came to parting um, the waters. That was God. What did Joshua do that um, that earned him this awe in in the sight of uh, all the people of Israel? He listened, and he followed the Lord, and he encouraged his people to do the same. Man, if that's not a testament to like what true godly leadership is, I don't know what is. All right, we're gonna finish through. All right, so we're in 15 and we're gonna go all the way to the end of chapter four, verse 15, all the way to the end of chapter four. And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priest bearing the Ark of the Testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant came up from the midst of the Jordan, the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground and the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. And the people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they encamped uh, at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And the 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground for the Lord, your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you had passed over as the Lord, your God did to the red sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over so that all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord, your God forever. So they cross over and immediately the waters go back. As soon as the priest's feet, uh, Leave the waters go back. It's reminiscent of, I think it's the Greek story, you know, they burn their boats. There's no, there's no turning around now. You're in it. Um, and there's some debates, you know, among scholars, because it does get a little confusing as you read it. Like, how many stone piles was were there? And they, they move it from here to there. Um there's definitely Points to be made on both sides of that uh, little debate. I don't think it's super important. The important thing is that they brought these stones with them to Gilgal. That's where they were camped outside of Jericho. And these stones represented a a testimony to the faithfulness and the power of God as they were staring down their enemy. Um, And this idea of stacking stones, it's not named here, but there's a practice of stacking stones as a remembrance to God. It's called raising an Ebenezer. Um you may have heard that term before if you sang, "Come thou fount, you heard this that that term earlier today and you probably thought, what does that word mean? Well now you know it's a stacking it's stacking a stone to remember um something amazing that God has done and it's not a terribly uncommon practice in the Old Testament. So with that we've covered. The entire three chapters, round of applause, I don't see anybody sleeping yet. So you, we covered a lot of scripture today. That's, that's good. Um, I wanna give you three takeaways uh, before, before leaving you. Yeah, three takeaways that I'm gonna go so fast. Um, the first takeaway that I think we can take away from this is follow God's lead. We need to follow God's lead. like Like the Israelites putting the ark out in front of them, we must also seek guidance in our lives Uh, for God's direction. We need to seek God's direction in our lives. And the question I want to ask, we need to ask ourselves is, when we reach crossroads at life, are we stopping and asking for God's direction? Now, when was the last time you found yourself at a crossroads? Like a a decision, a point in life where you could take two different paths and one path is going to lead you in a very different direction than the other path. Did you take the time to stop and ask for God's direction. Did you pray about it? Did you meditate and take time to listen? Or maybe you go and seek, seek wisdom in scripture, seek wisdom from wise and holy friends that you have. Now remember, when following God, when embarking on the adventure that is following God, it will often look crazy. It's all, it's, there's many times that onlookers are going to tell you, hey, you're nuts. If we had done a cost-risk analysis of um, of this situation, if we were, said, um, you know, looking at uh, the attack, you know, looking at the Israelites crossing the Jordan, if we had done a cost-risk analysis, we would have probably told them, you know, it would actually make a lot more sense if you wait a few months. Just wait until flood season's over. Then you can cross. This is going to be way easier. However... God said, follow me, and they followed. And when we find, uh, excuse me, when we follow God, we're often gonna find ourselves in spots where if if he doesn't show up, we're gonna get wet. We're gonna fall into the river. In in my experience, God will rarely um, let you wait until conditions are perfect to start something. Like if, if following God always requires some aspect of faith. So as I was thinking about examples of this, it, it struck me that many, many moons ago, this church was started. And if you think about the circumstances around launching this church, there was no like launching parent church. There was no building. There were no seminarians to lead the, the people. It was just a group of people who felt like God was calling them to preach the gospel in Middletown. And again, you could have probably made a case that you could just like wait a couple of years, check some of those boxes and wait, wait out. But it really felt like God was saying, Hey, you need to walk into the river. And so we did. And so where is God telling you to follow And perhaps even a better question is, where is he telling you to step into the river? Are there things that God has placed in your heart that maybe you're just sort of putting off? You're like, you know, I'm just gonna wait until life changes a little bit. Once life gets a little less busy, once a couple of things change, once a couple of circumstances look better, I'm gonna get started on this. Guys, circumstances are never gonna look perfect. If you wait till circumstances are perfect, you'll never do whatever it is that God has placed on your heart. All right, so we follow God's lead. Number two, we follow God's leader. As I mentioned earlier, these chapters emphasize just how important it was for God to communicate to the Israelites, Joseph is your leader, follow Joseph. He's the leader of the people. You know, following Moses and Moses passing away, God wants his people to know that they are not abandoned and that the covenant promise that he made with Moses is still being overseen by Joshua. Now, unless you're Catholic and I don't I mean, we might have a couple of, of, of folks in here but we don't have a single leader over our church today. Or do we? Well, no. and all the church says our single leader is <laughs> There we go, church answer. I love it. Yeah, it's Jesus. Obviously it's Jesus. We do have a leader and it's Jesus. God does not want us to feel abandoned. He does not want us to feel like we're orphans, but he wants us to look up to our leader better than any earthly leader, and that's Jesus. Now, there are a litany of ways that you can compare Joshua and Jesus. And there's a litany of ways you could say that Jesus is a better Joshua. And I I imagine we'll explore some of these as we continue on in this sermon series. But for the sake of time, I want to highlight one, just one. And that is, I'm going to mention the different covenants that they oversee. They both oversee covenants. Let's talk about the different ones. Okay. Joshua inherits his covenant and it's the covenant that we talked about the Sinaiic. I know I'm not saying that right. Covenant. Um, and it's, it's this idea that um, if you follow God, he will bless. If you don't follow God, there are consequences. And this promise shapes the entire Old Testament. And we see it throughout the entire thing. You know, as the nation of Israel, when they're following God, things seem to go pretty well. When they turn away from God, things, not so much. But that's not the promise that God makes with us today. That's not the promise God has with his people today. That's not our promise. God's blessings are not based on our behavior. Now, why? It's because we have a different leader. Jesus establishes a new covenant, and his covenant is not based on behavior. It's based on blood. And we don't have to be perfect because we have Jesus for us who lived a perfect life. And we don't have to fear punishment when we fail because Jesus, through his death on the cross, he has taken that punishment for us. So Jesus is like the perfect leader that all the imperfect Old Testament leaders foreshadowed. And to follow God means to follow his leader, Jesus. Now, as, as someone who was a, a pastor in a in, uh, previous life here, I was sometimes asked to provide counsel uh, in the people's personal lives, speak in. Um, and perhaps it was, you know, it could be marital problems. It could be problems with contentment. I mean, it really could run, run the gamut. Um, and I would most of the time when speaking with folks I would spend all my time talking about the relationship with Jesus. And sometimes to the frustration of them, because they'd be like, no, I want you to talk about my marriage. I'm like, I really want to talk about your relationship with Jesus. I might not even get to the issue they, <laughs> they, they came to me about. And so why? Why did I do that? Well, one, I'm not a trained counselor. And so I kind of like need to stay in my lane. And I do believe in counseling. So I don't want just to sound like I'm taking any swipes at people who do that. I think it's a really valuable profession and more people should seek it. But In my experience, if you're following Jesus, a lot of things in life will fall into place. And if you're not following Jesus, then no amount of good advice is going to help. If you're not in that repentant relationship with God, and when I say repentant relationship, I don't mean like you said a prayer one time. What I mean is there's a regular communication between you and God you admit the ways that you try and you fail to run your own life. You know, I I think of admit the ways that you tried to go out in front of the ark instead of the ark lead you. And then we look to Jesus for forgiveness, okay? If you don't have that repentant relationship, you can walk in as many rivers as you want. You're just gonna get wet. So the first step to following God is following Jesus. All right, so we follow God. We follow God's lead. We follow God's leader. And then the third point that I think is key in this section is that we create rhythms of remembrance. We create rhythms of remembrance. Because as I noted earlier, the author spends a lot of time focusing on what the Israelites did to remember the event. And the implication of raising an Ebenezer, the very fact that they did it, um, it, it implies that, Events like crossing the Jordan, events like God parting waters for us, they are unique. They're not going to happen every day. Most days won't involve miracles. Some days we will struggle to hear God's voice. So, having reminders of God's faithfulness, of God's power, can keep us from falling into forgetfulness, which may be the greatest enemy of our faith. Forgetfulness may be the greatest enemy. Of our faith. So I'm curious in your life, what Ebenezer's do you have? Maybe you have like a cross necklace or some jewelry. I think that's a really popular one that people use. Um, Some art in your home, some Bible verses hung on your on your walls. Uh, Maybe a tattoo. Um, What are the Ebenezer's that you have in your life? I, um, I came across something this week. Well, actually, it wasn't this week. It was this month as I was getting ready to move. So I'm getting ready to move, and I'm pulling everything out of closets, and I'm finding weird stuff. And it's taking me twice as long as it should because I'm stopping and looking at, oh, wow, old baseball cards. Cool. You know, and anyways, I came across this, and I, I brought it up so I could show you guys. This is, I found it amusing. This is the cross-training workout. It's a, uh, a journal, I bought in 1998, and this really spoke to 1998 Dan, like a cross-training, you know, like muscle workout thing. I bought this at a Young Life Camp, I think. Um, And so (laughs) I was like, I should probably throw this out, or I'll read it. So I read it, and I have to read one entry to you. I feel like I'm reading somebody else's diary, but it's fine, so it's cool, right? All right, so I wrote this, and like, uh, January 30th of 2000, so you do the math on that one. I wrote, "Life is funny. I just came back from Leader Weekend in Deer Creek, and I am determined to do things right. Future Dan, Hi. I've always been this dumb. When you read this, you had better be focused on Jesus, all caps. Do not do ministry if you're not focused on Christ. Oh, it goes on. I berate myself. for All my shortcomings and sins are in here. Oh, I can't throw this away. This is a treasure. I, you, you don't have to keep your old journals. You can throw them away if you want to. Uh, but this was helpful for me because I looked at this 20 years later and I can see God's faithfulness I can see that God's stuck with a 20-year-old kid who is still trying to figure things out. When was the last time you thought about how God has shown you his faithfulness? And when was the last time you shared that, that news with someone? One specific Ebenezer I think that we all can have is our testimony, the story about how God intersects with our life. When was the last time you shared your testimony with someone? Man, I think we got to dust that thing off. And if you're looking for someone to share it with, take a page out, you know, from Joshua and share it with your kids. Pass that on to the next generation. So you're welcome to do it. You're welcome to build Ebenezer's. You're welcome to build stone memorials. But I want you to understand, God doesn't call us to do that anymore. He doesn't say you have to build things out of stone to remember me. But he does call us to remember. The calling to remember endures. We still need Ebenezer's in our life, but instead of stacks of stone, they are going to look like rhythms of remembrance. So, what's a rhythm of remembrance? Well, things that we do on a regular basis, the liturgies of our life that help us remember who God is and what he has done. So, we come to church on a weekly basis and we hear the gospel over and over again. Every week, we need to be confronted by the gospel. This week, we look at the gospel and we remember how the waters that separated the Israelites from the promised land, like those waters, our sin separates us from God. And only through Jesus can we cross from death to life. We need that gospel spoken into our lives every day, every week. God calls us to rhythms. God calls us to rhythms of rest, keeping the Sabbath. You know, I'm just going to plug Pastor Matt's work. You know, there's a a good catalog of sermons and work that he's done on rhythms of rest. We're called to regularly stop our work, reflect on God's goodness, and rest in the completed work of Jesus. And the rhythm of that is what helps us to remember so we don't become forgetful and we don't damage our faith. So I could go on and on about this, but here's the question I want to leave you as we go. What Ebenezer's do you have in your life? Stacks of stone are good, but rhythms of remembrance are essential. Now, one act that we all have is communion. God asks us to do this regularly as a means of remembering his grace and his faithfulness made in this new covenant through Jesus. And as we take communion, we're not only acknowledging this, but we're confessing that we need Jesus' body broken for us and we need his blood poured out for us. So if that is your confession, we're welcome to come up, take the bread and break it and dip it into the wine or the juice, whatever your conscience permits. There is a, a gluten-free option over here. Um, and, and remember the faithfulness and grace that God has shown you in your life. If that's not your confession, we still want you to feel welcome. Like we're really glad you're here. Um, But the Bible does warn us to reserve communion for believers. And it's not because the Bible wants to be exclusionary, but it really wants to get people who come up and do this act. It wants to get their heart in the right place. We don't do this on autopilot. We wanna make sure that people come up here with a grateful, thankful, remembering heart. And if you don't know Jesus, you really can't get to that place. So instead of coming up to communion, invite you to keep coming. Keep coming around, ask questions. We love it when people throw questions at us, the harder the better. Um, Get to know us, get involved. We'd love to get to know you. I'm gonna pray and then we'll go ahead and start this time. Father, we thank you for the story of Joshua. Um, Lord, thank you that in this story, you're the hero. You lead your people. You create a path through the wilderness, through the river, um, and allow your people into the promised land. God, I pray that we would be a people who remember what you've done for us, specifically the work that you've done through us through Jesus. Help us to hold on to that. And help us to create Ebenezer's in our life, these rhythms of remembrance um, that reinforce just how loved and cared for and just how much grace and mercy you've shown us. And let that drive us and encourage us um, all of our days. Thank you, Lord.